This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Holston Wall Fair. Come to the Holston Wall Fair. Wonders, marvels, miracles, sideshows, all new. Come, Francis, let's go to the fair. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. If you are new to the podcast, real quick primer, we take two movies every single week. One more than 20 years old, the other less than 20 years old. So a classic and a contemporary film. And we just chat about them. This week, Kelsey, what are we covering? The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and The Babadook. Yeah, rockin'. All right, but before we get into that, we always start with Slash Cards, which is a Trivial Pursuit type game with no board. It's all trivia about horror games. I got this game from my parents for Christmas a couple years ago, uh, not because they knew, just because I said, hey, this looks good, and so they got it for me. (laughs) So it's obviously available for retail somewhere online yeah look for it it's a lot of fun but kelsey how about you give me something a reporter listens as a vampire tells the story of his life and undeath in this 1994 film uh interview with a vampire mm-hmm. cool how about this one though kelsey let's see if you can get this true or false so it's at least 50%. <laughs> In order to achieve its unique visual style, the director of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, 1920, had shadows painted on the set. True. That's very true. And we're going to talk about it uh, in just a moment, actually. Uh, but first, Kelsey, what's the premise of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? A man is doing like a carnival show about a somnambulist 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 which basically means he's a sleepwalker yes but som is sleeping and the nambulism is the movement it's moving while you're asleep but it's also it has to do with like he's hypnotized and stuff yeah it harkens back a little bit to like haitian zombies Mm -hmm. where they would be poisoned and, and people's hearts would stop and they'd be buried and then the uh, voodoo practitioner would come back and dig them up mm-hmm. and they'd wake up again but they'd have like no control over any of their functions uh, like their higher brain functions and so they'd just be workers they'd work on a plantation or etc they'd just be mindless zombies and so that's where zombieism started out i know this is a really really weird sidetrack <laughs> but it started out as a fear of losing control of yourself mm-hmm. and then it turned into representing other fears like uh, capitalism etc Mm-hmm. racism all sorts of things so dr caligari has a somnambulist he uses him to kill and that's basically the premise of the yeah. cabinet of dr caligari listen if you haven't watched it it's definitely worth watching it's from 1920 black and white silent film many people consider it to be the first true horror motion picture 
There were other movies, but I mean, they were very short. Yeah. Like not feature length or anything. We will talk about those movies when we get to the Babadook, actually. (laughs) But this is like a feature length film, but by feature length, I mean like an hour and seven minutes or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's probably on YouTube. We watched it on Amazon Prime where it's free there if you're a Prime subscriber. So go ahead and watch the movie now if you haven't already. And when we come back, we will talk about 1920s, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Hey everybody, I'm Ben Mankiewicz. Welcome to TCM and this week's edition of Silent Sunday Night. Up first from 1919, one of the most dissected, studied, and interpreted movies of the 20th century. It's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, starring Werner Krauss in the title role. Dr. Caligari is a demented hypnotist in a traveling carnival who uses his talents to exploit a sleepwalker, manipulating the man to carry out his evil bidding. It's a story of madness, mayhem, and murder. Critic Roger Ebert called The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari the first true horror movie, but it's nothing like the horror movies of the 1930s or today. And the backdrops are hardly everyday matte paintings. They're abstract interpretations of a scene from Germany in 1919. Written by Carl Mayer and Hans Janowitz and directed by Robert Weiner, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. All right, Kelsey. Yes. Walk us through what happens in The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. There isn't much of a story. So we open on these two men and the guy is finishing up his story about the spirits, they're everywhere. And the guy's like, you don't, you haven't seen nothing. Like, wait till you hear my story. And this girl walks by and she's very, like, in a trance. And he's like, there's my betrothed. We've been through some shit. And then he tells his story. And there's not much to it. Like I said, a dude shows up and he's like, oh, there's a carnival in town. Can I have, like, a a booth there? Which is real. We still have that today. Yeah. uh Um, And he's like, you know, I've got this somnambulist that I want to show off. Which, like, okay. Come on. How is that a show? No, How is I, that a show? Exactly. I actually wrote down, am I missing something? He's just a sleepwalker? Yeah. I mean, later on we find out that he, he tells fortunes and portents of doom. Yes. But, like, that has nothing to do with him being a somnambulist. Right. He's a fortune-telling sleepwalker is what he is. I saw this movie for the first time, and I think the only time, in high school for my film class my senior year. And I loved it. So when I when we were doing this, I was really excited to watch it again. Yeah. And as I was watching it this time, I was like, it dawned on me that expressionist films are not meant to be dissected. They're meant to be experienced. Right. I actually have very few notes. Me too. For this movie. it, it You really should see it if you haven't. But so we'll quickly burn through the plot here. I mean, basically, he has control over the somnambulist, and he hypnotizes him and can, and gets him to kill people he doesn't like, essentially, yeah. people that stand in his way or are rude to him. Like the clerk, when he first shows up, the clerk tells him to wait and, like, makes him wait all day before he talks to him. So, of course, the clerk gets killed. And then he's supposed to kill this girl who is supposed to be the betrothed of the guy at the very beginning. So the guy at the very beginning, his name is Francis. His betrothed is named Jane. There's another character named Alan. He's the guy who talks to the somnambulist Cesare during the show and is told, you will die <laughs> before tomorrow or whatever it is he says. Mm-hmm. And and sure enough, he's he's killed, which makes room for uh, Francis and Jane to you know, get together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, so he he ends up killing that guy, and yeah, as Chris said, now the other two can be together. And for some reason, I can't remember why, the somnambulist is supposed to kill Jane. Well, first, he kills, he goes out to kill an old woman. Like, there's never a motive given for the murders, really. Except for the clerk. Oh, yeah, except for for the clerk, because... You know, he was a dick to him. (laughs) But, I mean, otherwise, there's not really a a lot of motive. He goes after this old lady, and that causes the town to go into a panic. Mm -hmm. The lady screams out, help, help, it is he, the killer. Oh, no, she, that's not. Oh, that's a different one. Cesare, remember? That's the random guy that they catch. Okay, so let's, let's, (laughs) let's move on to that. They catch this random guy, and he's like, listen. Did I try to kill this old hag? Yeah. (laughs) But I promise it has nothing to do with any of the other murders that have happened. I don't have anything to do with it. He he says, I thought that it would just be assumed that she was just one of the other murders. Right. He was taking advantage of the scenario. Why he wanted to kill her, we don't know. (laughs) Right. This movie, I mean, granted, it's 1920. Right. There's not a lot of standard there's not a lot of precedent for, like, the structure of a filmed story. So it could have been longer and had more stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it didn't. They don't go a lot into character development or anything and like that. at the end, you figure out why. Yes. Yeah. That's the thing. This movie can get away with all of that because of its ending. Yes. So we're almost there. Cesare goes to kill Jane. Kill Jane, and she fights back. And instead of stabbing her, he carries her carries off. her off. Kind of like uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon, almost. Oh yeah, no, totally like the the creature. It's a lot of like vague threats of violence and capture somebody for what purpose we don't know. Nothing really ever happens. Oh, we forgot about this during the chase. Uh, while they're chasing after Cesare, Jane survives, but Cesare uh, falls to his death. That's right. <laughs> and that's the end of Cesare. Yeah, and then uh, the main guy, the guy who's telling the story, finds out that the guy who's supposed to be the hypnotist is actually a psychologist or a psychiatrist who worked in a mental hospital. Oh, you skipped the dummy. It's at this point that the the townsfolk go to Dr. Caligari's um, wagon or whatever it is that he's staying in. Oh, that's right. And they force him to take out Cesare, and he does. No, because they, they've been watching him, and another murder takes place. And they're like, well, what the hell? He hasn't moved. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they open up the cabinet, and in it is just a human-sized dummy of Cesare. <laughs> like, oh, what the fuck? And then Caligari fucking books it. Yes. Right, and he gets out of there. So Francis follows him and follows him to an insane asylum where he discovers and tries to tell the police that Dr. Caligari is like the head of the asylum. Mm-hmm. And Cesare supposedly is like hundreds of years old. So when the doctor got him, he was like, oh, yeah, so the, the, I can do things. The, the police and Francis read his diary, his diary mm-hmm. that he keeps in his office and they're reading through it. And they they explain the story is that 
the doctor became obsessed with this guy called Caligari who had a cabinet that he kept a somnambulist in and he would uh, hip, basically mind control the somnambulist into killing for him. And the doctor was obsessed with it until one day they bring in a man who is basically in a coma. And he's like, oh, hooray, tis my time. Yeah. I shall be Dr. Caligari. So that's how this this legend carries over the course of 100 years is because it's actually different people. And if you're wondering if this makes any sense and you're thinking to yourself, what the fuck are they talking about? The ending again rationalizes all of it. Do you want to tell them what happens? Yes. Okay. So they confront Caligari when he actually shows up back at his office and he starts freaking out, you know, ah, Cesare's dead. Oh no. Oh God, whatever shall I do? And they put him in a straitjacket and they toss him in one of the cells and Francis proposes to Jane and she says she can't marry because he's not of royal blood. And we're like, wait, what? So, yeah, so we cut back to the present. So he's finished telling his story. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And, yeah, and he goes to this girl, and he's like, when are we getting married? She's like, I can't marry anyone that's not of royal blood. And me and Chris are just like, like, uh... What's happening? (laughs) And then down the stairs comes the director, Dr. Caligari. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're like, wait, what? (laughs) And it, it, it dawns on you pretty freaking quick that... Oh, Francis is nuts. Francis is just insane, and he's in an insane asylum. Yeah, it was a crazy twist, which, I mean, for the first, like, arguably the first horror movie, what a twist! What a twist! Yes. You know? Yes. That's pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's where M. Night Shyamalan got it from. <laughs> the first horror movie was twisty. How about, <laughs> I'll make all my horror movies twisty. <laughs> yeah, and that's the... End of the movie. Right. And uh, you're like how I feel and you can disagree with me, but I feel that this movie is much more supposed to be about the visuals and the experience. Yes. Just soaking it up, taking it in, watching it. Uh, Because like we said, there's not much to the story. The story doesn't really make sense. And it all ends up being just a silly story anyway. But what we're supposed to be paying attention to is the costumes, the makeup, and, of course, the sets. Yes. So this is 1920 Germany. World War One or the Great War, had just ended like two years ago. Germany is under some pretty heavy restrictions on what they can do. They have, like, no resources And they have no space to put on a big production or anything like that. But this guy, the director, Robert Vina, he wants to make this movie. And this style came out of half, you know, expressionism at the time and half necessity. He had, like, no major lighting rigs or anything to to film it. He had no space to film it in. And so in order to get some of the perspectives and all of that, he's like, well, fuck it. We'll make it weird, (laughs) you know? And so he, like we talked about earlier, he paints shadows on things Mm -hmm. uh, to both mimic the lighting that he would want and to mess with perspective. Mm -hmm. And he makes it all radical. These like paper and wood sets. 
and that's it. Like nothing is practically nothing is real. Mm-hmm. And they're very shallow sets. There's one courtyard that's the biggest set in the whole fucking movie. Mm-hmm. So in order to kind of play with the eye and make it look really cool with what limited resources they have, everything's painted and angled really weird. And there are corners and weird alleyways and it fucks with your depth perception. Yeah. And it's also now who knows, right? It could literally just be, I don't have any fucking money. I'm just going to do this. Yeah. But now we look at expressionism and we say it, it's a response to the hyper realism that was film before then, because film was very new at this point, And so people were taking it, just kind of showing you what real life looked like. And so this was their chance to do something different you what know I, what i like with styles that have like rules or restrictions is i mean i i play a lot of video games so if you get really good at a video game but you really enjoy the game you might like put restrictions on yourself like oh let me see if i can beat this whole level without dying let me see if i can do it in under five minutes you know like and you put restrictions on yourself and that's a lot of what certain styles of writing are there's so many different kinds of poems and, you know, kids complain about, like, why don't they just, you know, why does it have to rhyme? Why does it have to have rules? Why is it this many syllables? Why is it this meter? Why is it this rhyming scheme? And it's like, well, they're putting restrictions on themselves to foster creativity. Because if you have no limits, yeah, you can write the craziest shit, but you're not really challenging yourself. And these styles act as basically challenges, you know, can you fit what you're trying to say into this rhyming scheme? Can you fit it into like a haiku, three lines, certain number of syllables? And so it it makes me think of this movie where it's, can you make the movie that you want to make? Can you communicate what you want to communicate? Can you make it look really fucking cool with no resources and no space? And... He does some really cool stuff with these sets. Like, that's the real standout character. The doctor looks weird. Cesare looks kind of weird, I guess. Um, the the writing's not that great. The twist is cool. But the sets are like the real star of this movie. Yes. And also, it's been written as well that, especially because it comes out of Germany, and like Chris said, right after World War One, if you take a look at all of the Expressionist films, usually it does have something to do with depression or madness. Yeah. And, they, you know, the, the idea is that, that that's what Germany was feeling at the time. Yeah. And so it also, it reflected the way the Germans felt after World War One. And the whole movie is this flashback as told by a crazy person. Exactly. And so you can evoke that sort of madness. Like, what are the scenes that we get in modern day? It's that small courtyard at the Institute or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing really crazy about that set. But every other set is just fucking nuts because every other location is in Francis's mind. Mm-hmm. And Francis is nuts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. It's um, it's very interesting to look at. You can see where a lot of people got their ideas from. Yeah. If Chris mentioned while we were watching it, oh, this feels very Tim Burton. Absolutely. Tim Burton definitely gets a lot of his stuff from German Expressionism, uh, as does the Babadook, which is why we paired them together. 
And additionally, you can see a lot of films of today are still heavily influenced by this idea of someone reading about a legend and being like, I want to do that. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I wrote just two examples down, but if I thought about it, I'm sure I could come up with more. It, it made, immediately made me think of Human Centipede 2. Right, which is, don't watch Human Centipede, guys. Don't bother. Don't. Unless you're into torture porn. Yeah. If you like that stuff. But the idea of Human Centipede 2 is that the guy saw Human Centipede? It was a movie, yeah. yeah. So it, in it, the in, sequel, yeah. it's supposed to be a film that the character saw and was like, yeah. oh, fuck yeah. I want to uh-huh. do that. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to complete it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and his goal is to is to make it bigger. It's something like 100 people or something yeah. ridiculous. And then also Sallow, which is where they read... I've um, never read it. Or never seen it. Don't. <laughs> it's <laughs> disgusting and pointless. But it's about these people. They read Marquis de Sade's book. Ugh. And they decide to do the things that he wrote about to children. That's what that movie's about. So... <laughs> But it's the idea of they read about something crazy and they were like, I'm going to fucking do that. I mean, urban legend. That's what happens in urban legend, yeah. too. Here's a lesson about the Marquis de Sade, people. You come to hear about horror movies and you get free education. <laughs> um, the Marquis de Sade was an awful human being. He's famous for being persecuted and put away because people couldn't handle his ideas. And he was forced to rally against the man and write his words and shit on the walls. Quills is about him, right? Yes, Quills is about him. Mm -hmm. No, he was awful. He was abusive. (laughs) He was a rapist. He would molest little children. He should have been put away, and he was. Mm -hmm. And he's put up as this, like, you know, artistic hero who people just didn't understand and they locked him up. No, they understood him that he was an awful human being and should be locked up. So don't fucking champion the Marquis de Sade people and Sallow. What the fuck? (laughs) That's really all I have to say about this movie, Kelsey. Yeah, I mean, if if you like silent film, I always want to start with that because (laughs) if you don't like silent movies, and that's totally okay if you don't, I understand. It's hard for me. It's very difficult for me to stay engaged with the silent film. But this one is, first of all, extremely influential. It's only an hour long. It's really not that long. And it's just the sets are amazing. I loved the scene where they were at the carnival. Yeah. Because the way he set it up, the carnival is in the background. Now, obviously, like Chris said, the set is tiny. So how do they show that? Well, they show it by putting the principal characters up front, up tall, mm-hmm. and they put everything beneath them. So we don't need to see all the stuff of the carnival. All we need to see is spinning tops yeah. of like um, uh-huh. a merry-go-round and other things like that. Yeah. You know, and they have a couple people milling about in the center. And that's all they needed. And you get this entire idea of this huge carnival behind right. them. You start to catch this stuff where they like, to get to that scene, you're right. They're they're elevated, so they gotta like walk up some steps. Yes. To get there, and you're like, oh, that's interesting. This is you don't realize that. Oh, that's because he wants to set all the action of the carnival down below where it can't be seen. Mm-hmm. It's really neat. Yeah. What what like how resourceful? Yeah, it's yeah. It, like like I said, 
if you don't believe all the other things that are written about German expressionism and you just want to believe, no, they just didn't have any damn money. Uh, <laughs> well, then it's a he, confluence of events. It's multiple things. But what he did with that was impressive. Yeah. And you you might be like, oh, you know, it's not realistic in any way. Why would they need to go upstairs here? Like, why are there stairs in this in this set? And it's like, well, if, don't care. if you're not able to... If you're not able to buy into this world that he's created, then it's not for you. But if you are able to just be like, I just want to see it. And you know what? This is this is a That's movie. What you do. This is a movie that people saw at like at my high school and they came out really loving and these are people that would never watch a silent film in their entire lives because it's unique, it's creative. It has that twist, so you walk away going, oh, that's neat. <laughs> um, and it's short. It's just over an hour. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, really, if you've never watched a silent film or a silent film has never, like, grabbed you before, if you didn't watch The Phantom Carriage when we when we covered that one a while back, then maybe give this one a shot. Because, like I said, it's short. It's really neat. And maybe this will get you into watching more silent films. It's just a bummer whenever we cover silent films. I can't put a lot of like audio clips in here. You can't put like any. That. I don't know why you say a lot. You can't put any. <laughs> I've done before with like music or, you know, people talking about it. But that's like it's really difficult to find and I can't do much with it. <laughs> um, Yeah, it's interesting because The Phantom Carriage and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari are so different from each other. Yeah. If you want something more story-based, go with Phantom Carriage. If you want something that's more of just imagery, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah. So, Kelsey, what do you think it got on Rotten Tomatoes? I think I already know. 50 reviews. Pretty sure it's 100. 100%. Yeah. Because, I mean, who's going to badmouth this movie? Right. What would you give it? So, right after we say that. No, I mean, the, the way Rotten Tomatoes works, so this is... For those of you that are new to the show, again, uh, at the end of the movie, we'll we'll try to guess. I'll ask Kelsey to guess what she thinks the Rotten Tomato score is. We understand Rotten Tomato score is not the end-all, be-all of whether or not a movie's good. We don't believe that. It's just a fun way to gauge response to a movie. And we rarely agree with them. Right, yeah. So we understand that the way Rotten Tomatoes works is it's a straight up and down for every review. Is it positive or negative overall? So even if you have negative things to say about it, it might be read as a positive review or vice versa. And then they give you a percentage based on that. And so 100% of these 50 reviews skew positive. It doesn't mean there's nothing wrong with the movie. So that being said, if you were to give it a score, Kelsey, what would it be? Probably a 90. Probably a 90 as well. I take off that 10% because... The parts of it are incomprehensible... Yeah. Um, the plot is inconsequential. Yeah. It's just, it's a feast for the eyes. Yes. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. 90%, I think, is a pretty good score. The consensus written on Rotten Tomatoes is, ah, ha, ha, arguably the first true horror film. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari set a brilliantly high bar for the genre and remains terrifying nearly a century after it first stalked the screen. You know, her people were really upset by this movie. It had to be released twice, both in Germany and in America. I don't Why? know if that's necessarily true, but they'd release it and people would be really upset about the ending. Why? Well, 
because it's twisted or because they were lied to or whatever reason, people just didn't like it. And so they would like rebrand it and then release it again. And then it would do well the second time, both in Germany and in America. Now, again, might be apocryphal. I don't know. That's why I didn't mention it earlier, but I felt that that was pretty interesting. Initially, the film was dismissed by critics and moviegoers. It was pulled from theaters. But at the time, with the post-World War I economy in Germany stagnant, German film production ground to a halt, needing something to put in theaters, Dr. Caligari was re-released a year later with a new publicity campaign. And this time, the movie became an international hit. A year after that, 1921, Sam Goldwyn brought the film to America, inspiring a new wave of artistic films in Hollywood. All right, Kelsey, that is The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920. Next up, the second round of Slash Cards. Yes. Kelsey, ask your question. Name three horror movies about evil children. Pick this because fuck this kid. <laughs> Pet Cemetery. Okay. The Omen. Yep. And The Omen 666 released out June of the 6, tons of movies you chose a second omen yeah okay what are what other movies what are the examples it gives on the back of the card the examples it's gi- it gives are the bad seed oh yeah the good son the omen uh-huh and orphan all right kelsey psycho 1960 the texas chainsaw massacre 1974 and the silence of the lambs 1991 were all based in part on the exploits of what real life killer? Ed Gein. That's correct. I know all about Ed Gein. Yeah, you can't you cannot read anything about any of those movies without them mentioning about how it's based on Ed Gein. I know this is terrible to say. He's fascinating. Sure. I can't help it. I I've read so much about him and I just can't get enough. Like it's just such a bizarre story. He was nuts. <laughs> it's the it's the true crime lust that's getting a resurgence nowadays, especially with, you know, a bunch of podcasts about it, uh, Netflix documentaries. There's My Favorite Murder, which is a great podcast if you like true crime stories. You should listen to it. I watch a lot of true crime. <laughs> yeah, she really does. So it's no surprise that she's fascinated by Ed Gein. But he was truly a monster of a human being, enough yes. so and early enough that he stands as kind of like the guy. If you're skinning or eating your victims, then you're based on Ed Gein. If <laughs> if you're a murderer and you are vaguely transgendered, they'll say it's based on Ed Gein. Problems with your mom. Yeah. If you, do you have problems with your mom? <laughs> Especially if in your, you know, you dress up as a woman, if you dress up as your mom, a la... Wait, we're not going to go there. I'm not going to give spoilers to a fucking 50-year-old movie. How old, is, <laughs> how old is Psycho? Oh, whoops. Oh, no. I just gave it away. <laughs> You're based on Ed Gein. So anyway, if you don't know who he is. Look him up. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on. We're going to talk about 2014's The Babadook, written and directed by Jennifer Kent. Kelsey, what is The premise of the Babadook. A single mother deals with an anxiety-ridden child and their shared delusion of a monster. Nice. Very cool. Uh, We've seen this, what, like three times now? Yeah. Probably. Something like that. It's worth watching. I mean, it just came out 
in uh, 2014. So almost once a year we've seen this movie. Probably. <laughs> yeah. It's good. It's worth watching. And so you should go and watch it. Where did we? It was on Netflix, right? The first time we saw it? No, just now. Oh, yeah. We just watched it on Netflix. Yeah. So if you have Netflix, watch The Babadook. In fact, did we see it in theaters? I don't think we did. I don't remember. Anyway. Go watch it now. It's definitely worth seeing. Before we get into talking about it, you should watch it. Yeah. Um, Just if you have a low tolerance for annoying kids, just, you know, grip your chair or something. (laughs) Get through it. It's part of it. Yeah. You you can't have one without the other. (laughs) Part of it. (laughs) (laughs) They're not going to know what you're talking about. (laughs) And the skeletons are part of it. (laughs) David Pumpkins, man! Okay, yeah, yeah, and David Pumpkins is... His own thing! And the skeletons are... Part of it! Alright, so go ahead and watch the movie, and when we get back, we'll talk about 2014's The Babadook. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of The Babadook. He wants to scare you first. Then you'll see it. Kelsey? Yes? What happens in the Babadook? So we immediately get our main character, Amelia. We get her exposition right away. It tells us that she was in a car accident when she was giving birth, and it's pretty quickly um, presumable that her husband died in the car crash. But she and her child, her son, uh, survived. And we get that all through a dream sequence at the very beginning of the film. Then we wake up and we meet the lovely child, Samuel. Samuel. Look at me, Mom. Come on, Samuel. Look at me. Stand still, Nothing in my hands, nothing in my hands. I don't want you making weapons anymore. It doesn't work if you don't look at me. He is the most annoying kid, but you understand it because he's grown up under this shadow of, you know, my mother hates my birthday because it's the day that my father died, and my father died driving my mother to the hospital to give birth to me. So so essentially, it's my fault. Needless to say, he has some complexes. Yeah. He's he's projecting all of this anxiety and fear that he has, self-doubt, that sort of thing. he, He projects that onto monsters that he can't see. And so he creates these devices to fight back the monsters, to make himself feel more powerful and in control. Yes. And his dad's not around, so he has to protect his family. Mm-hmm. But but he's a child. Yeah. And he's terrified. So even though he wants to protect his mom, he's also terrified and wants her to protect him as well. And we see that in their day, their nightly routine of him coming in, saying there's a monster. She has to check everything. Then she reads to him, and then she falls asleep with him. And it's very quickly explained or displayed that she's a little bit of an indulgent mother, which is probably why you know he he goes to the extremes that he goes to because she lets him because a he got to give it to her she she's a single she's mother she's going through a lot of shit of a very difficult child 
who also went through the same trauma, except she actually lived through it and he mm-hmm. wasn't born yet. Yeah. And at the same time, she's just exhausted. So it's like she, the energy that she has is not going to be spent on discipline. You know, it's going to be spent on trying to comfort him and take care of him and take care of herself. So she doesn't get a lot of sleep because of her kid and how he is constantly afraid and needs her to do all this stuff and you know it's she's obviously going through a lot of depression but she's refusing to let herself deal with it because she can't she doesn't have time she has to take care of her kid she has a demanding job with a bitch for a um boss boss. we we see this also in she has a few interactions with her sister Mm -hmm. and so we can kind of see what she might have been like if she didn't have this tragedy and this responsibility and this exhaustion in her life, she'd probably be one of these women at the at the parties. And she has this kind of self-absorbed sister who only cares and talks about herself, only talks about her sister's life in terms of how it affects her. The artist is so drunk he vomited. Right in front of his own installation. Lost all these sales. You're not listening. And, I mean, you kind of hate the sister. <laughs> right. But because... again, at the same time, it is exhausting to deal with someone who's going through that, especially someone who refuses to deal with it. Yeah. Which, and... which let's be honest, Amelia does. She does her best with what she has. She does her best to cope. Y- yes. She does, not, she does not deal with her issues. She's coping her a lot. Issues. Right. Uh-huh. She's not tackling them. She's not solving problems. She's setting them aside. She's setting them on the shelf. Yeah. (laughs) See where that goes in just a second. (laughs) So you mentioned that they have this ritual at night that in order for him to actually fall asleep, he needs confirmation that there are no monsters. He needs to be read to until he falls asleep. And if he doesn't fall asleep, then she needs to read another story or read that same one over again. That brings us to... So one night she says, okay, you get to choose. So he goes and he gets a book. And it's this big red hardcover book and it's called The Babadook. Mr. Babadook. Mr. Babadook, you're right. And it's a pop-up book. And the images are definitely German Expressionism. Oh, yeah. No, it looks straight out of... Like if you were to do a children's book of Dr. Caligari, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it would look like this. Yes. Dark shadows, harsh lines, the long coats, the big hats, all that stuff. Straight out of Expressionism. And I actually looked it up, and the director... There's only one line of dialogue that I could find that the director talks about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And she actually says... A lot of people ask me if that's where I got a lot of my ideas from, and it's not. Yeah. She she says, I'm sure it was in the back of my head, but it wasn't at the forefront. And she lists a ton of movies that she got her ideas from. So we'll talk about it in a little bit, what movies those are. I have a list of movies that actually appear in this film, and uh, we'll talk about, about what they are and, and et cetera uh, when we get to that point. But I think we need to get there in the story first before we talk about it, so... Continue well, let's on. let's talk about Samuel before we get into the book. Okay. Because I think listeners need to have a good idea of who this character is. He is always screaming, always doing something dangerous, 
loud, obnoxious, annoying. He doesn't listen to anything his mother tells him. He doesn't follow any rules. He does shit at school. He gets in trouble at school. They want to give him a full-time monitor, which, sorry, as a teacher, I have to agree with it. I'm yeah. sorry. Mm-hmm. I will always agree with the teacher that's like, uh, no, your kid is a fucking danger to my other children. I am in charge of these people. I take care of these kids. These parents rely on me for their safety. And if your child- right. You're not the only parent at this school. And yeah. if your child is bringing dangerous weapons, which is why they're like, he needs- He a- had a pencil crossbow. Yeah. yeah. He needs a monitor. He absolutely yeah. does. I have students that have monitors and I have had to deal with parents that have been like, I'm not okay with this. It makes him, it sets my kid apart. Um, everyone sees that there's something your wrong with him. Is, there, there is something wrong with your kid. There is something yeah. wrong. He it, needs it might help. Not be, it might not be the best thing to hear. And it might be especially difficult to deal with when you get the impression that the faculty doesn't care about your kid. Yeah, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with, I'm in charge of 40 kids Yeah, at a time. Yours is not the only one in there, but yours is the only one that's causing a danger to my other yeah. kids. Mm-hmm. So he is a terror. And so as much as you want her to be this amazing mother, she's a human being. Yeah. And she's dealt with major trauma. And it feels almost like an honest look at how exhausting... Being a parent, but then being a single parent, but then being a single parent of a child that obviously has special needs. Yeah. Like, how just exhausting and draining and difficult that that must be. And the fact that, from her perspective, no one cares. Yeah. And I mean, I can understand that perspective. You know, her sister is a bitch, but it's also because, well, your son put my daughter in danger. Now, did the daughter kind of deserve to get pushed out the window? No. No, she did not. <laughs> but I get it. Right. He, it's It was a child response. I see my kids who were 13 years old still pushing each other because they get angry. He just happened to do it in a treehouse. Yeah. Where the danger was a lot worse. <laughs> yeah, but this, this little girl was a little bitch. Yeah, she's a total bitch. Your dad died so he didn't have to be with you. That's not true! And your mom doesn't want you. No one wants you. And she's repeating things that her mother has said. Yes. So. Which is another reason why we don't like the mother. Right. The, uh, the um, sister. Amelia's sister, yeah. So now, okay, back to the Babadook. So she's got the book. And it's really cool. I would That's love. So neat. I would love I'm to have really it. Really bummed that we don't have a copy of it. They they did a very very limited run, mm-hmm. uh, promotional for the movie where they had all the pages you see in the book plus a few more that you that you don't see in the movie. It'd be really cool to have that. They made like ten or twenty thousand of them, and that's it. So, kind of bummed we didn't grab one. <laughs> and it's cute. It's a cutesy story, you know. Um, if it's in a word or it's in a look. You can't get rid of the Babadook. If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. If you're a really clever one and you know what it is to see, then you can make friends with a special one, a friend of you and me. His name is Mr. Babadook, and this is his book. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. Ba-ba-ba-duk. 
That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. We might read another one tonight, hey? So it's very much like a nursery rhyme, but the imagery is not. Yeah, and well, and it uses distressing terms too, like let it in and shit like that. And the more she fights against this book, as we will see in the movie, the more aggressive the book gets. Mm-hmm. So it's all about this character, Mr. Babadook, who comes into your home. And once He'll you knock. once you let him in, uh-huh. you can't get rid of him. Yeah. Now, the ultimate metaphor here. What do you think? Okay. Is the Babadook is her rage. It is a personification of her rage. I think you're validated by the end of the movie. I think you're right. I think that's a really, really good take that especially because this is something I noted. I wasn't paying too close attention. I didn't go back to verify. So listen, if I'm wrong, write us podcemetery at gmail.com and correct us. That's totally fine. When does Samuel see the Babadook? There are several points in the movie where he sees or talks to the Babadook. He even has a seizure one time because of it. When does that happen? When he first sees him? No, whenever throughout the movie he sees the Babadook, what's happening at that moment? It's when she's upset. Yes. It's when she is upset. Mm-hmm. And when she's completely emotionless and drained, like mm-hmm. nothing happens. There's even a point where I'm, I'm wondering how to wrap this in where she starts masturbating and he shows up because he's freaked out. Maybe it's because. That's her way of releasing this anxiety, and that's what's happening. It's getting out in the form of this Babadook character. Mm-hmm. And she trashes the book. She rips it up and she throws it away. When does it come back? The next day? When she starts drugging her kid. Really? Yeah. I didn't notice that. So uh, now let's let's clarify this, because she goes to the hospital because the fucking kid... Fell off of the top of a swing set. (laughs) And so she takes him to the hospital and he's like, oh, he's going to be fine. And she's like, can we please get him something to help him sleep? And he's like, yeah, no, I can I can tell you I can refer you to a great doctor who's perfect for this. And she's like, no, I need something right now. I don't understand why she didn't have him in therapy well before this. She doesn't have a lot of money. I think she's spending all of her money on. Don't they have free health care in Australia? I don't know. I think they do. Hey, Australians, do you have, <laughs> do you have free health care? <laughs> we sure don't. <laughs> but anyway, I'm fairly certain that they do. And if they do, then there's no reason that she shouldn't have gotten him therapy before this. Unless I think that's just one more thing to add on to what she has to deal with. Right. But what I was to say is unless, again, that's part of her... I don't want to deal with this. Yeah. Because I that want would be to pretend right. yeah. like it didn't happen. That would be her dealing with it. Exactly. Yeah. She doesn't deal with it. And so it builds up inside of her. And so when she does, quote unquote, deal with it by pushing it further away, mm-hmm. which is drugging her child, mm-hmm. which don't get me wrong. I don't think the movie's saying this. I'm absolutely not saying this. If you take medication or your child takes medication to deal with mental issues and you are prescribed that medication, by all means, you should be taking it. But that's not what's happening here. She doesn't want to 
fix her child. She wants to sedate her child. Mm -hmm. And that's a completely different thing. She wants to smother it. Yeah. She and any person, any doctor will tell you that is not how you deal with your emotions. Right, which is why the doctor was like, listen, she obviously seems like she's in distress. I gave her the referral, so she, she it seems like to him she's gonna take action, but she, she needs something just temporarily and he puts like a limited amount on that script mm-hmm. and she only gets so many pills mm-hmm. because he's like, this is not a permanent solution. Mm-hmm. This gets you until you can have that appointment. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's when the book comes back. And the book comes back and it's been all like taped back together. And it has new pages and new content. And it's way more aggressive. Yeah. So it's way more terrible this time. It shows that she wants to kill the dog, that she wants to kill her son, and that she wants to kill herself. And she's terrified of these images for obvious reasons. But again... What I think the metaphor is saying is that these are things that are going on in her head and she's just pretending like they're not. You're right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that. When you've got these kinds of serious issues, you need to deal with them. Yeah. Because otherwise, this is the shit that will happen. There is no shame in admitting that you have pro- a problem and then doing something about it. Exactly. I'll never forget when I took Psych 101 in in She knows everything there is to know about the human brain. Oh, totally. (laughs) Our teacher told us a story of how, like, a good friend of his, who was also a psychiatrist, came to him. A psychiatrist. So somebody who's supposed to have all their shit together came to him. That's a common misconception, yeah. And said, I'm really concerned about myself. Mm -hmm. I'm having weird thoughts about my child. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't feel like my child is safe around me in in that, like, when they're upset, like, I feel like I'm going to do something and I, right. and there's something wrong. And he was like, I'm so glad you came to me. Now we can deal with this. Yeah. And he came up with ways for her to deal with these emotions. And then she could be a normal mother. And it's like, that's what you're supposed to do. Because if you don't and you ignore it, one day your child is going to drive you out of your mind and, and you're going to do gonna something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good time to stop here for a moment and just say, if you're a listener and you are dealing with emotional or mental issues, please, please, please. We are absolutely begging you to seek help because you deserve it. Mm-hmm. She also starts to hallucinate. And what you'll notice, she like- starts to hallucinate when she first gets that phone call. She gets a phone call and it's the Babadook. Babadook. Duck. Duck. That, that <laughs> phone call. Yeah. Hello. And then that's when she starts to actually see it and it enters her. She well, I was actually talking about the phone. bugs that she sees. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So she starts to hallucinate. She sees bugs crawling in through a hole in the wall. And again, that just bleeds into the metaphor of like, it'll get in. Yeah. It'll seep out. You can't just close up the wall. It'll get out again. Yeah. You can't throw the book away. It'll come back. Right. And like Chris said, every time the kid freaks out, it's when the mom is upset. When, when the kid freaks out about the Babadook. Yeah. So. But he kind of stops seeing the Babadook as soon as. She starts hallucinating the Babadook. Mm-mm. He sees that it's in her. 
Right, right, right. That's what I'm saying. But he doesn't like throughout up to up to the point where she starts seeing the Babadook, he sees it and we see him seeing it and there's nothing there. Right. And so he it seems that he is hallucinating. But as soon as it enters her, the first time she sees it when she's sleeping and it goes into her mouth, which I think to build on this metaphor is it's really starting to have an effect on her and her personality and her actions even more so than when it was bubbling under the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when he recognizes that it got to her and he stops seeing it everywhere else. So it, it's like their hallucinations are like verifying each other. They are having a shared delusion. Yeah. Much mm-hmm. like Bug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She goes absolutely insane and she starts to do and say things that she... She usually, she regrets them pretty quickly, but then she goes fully off the rails, ends up killing the dog, which is a real sad scene. I know. It's the worst. The dog, since we don't see the father's death, the dog is the only character that dies in the movie, which is rare. What was the last movie? We just saw it in a movie. The Conjuring. The Conjuring, right? Yeah. And there's also one, Friday the 13th with the dog. Is that Friday the 13th? Where we see the dog go limp in the guy's arms. Remember we watched a movie and all you see is the legs. Oh yeah, and then the, the legs and they go, go limp. limp. Yeah, I don't remember. I think it's Friday the thirteenth. I could be wrong. Yeah, like it barks at the Yeah, yeah. She kills the dog in Friday the thirteenth. Mm-hmm. When it barks at her. Right? Or is that the remake? I don't know. We've seen so many movies already. Guys, this is our 22nd episode. That means 44 movies we've seen since we started this. And that's not the only movies we've seen in that time. <laughs> so Sometimes it bleeds together. Sometimes it provides us with some amazing context. <laughs> this seems to be the former. So she kills the dog. And I think when she realizes it, it freaks her out. Just like the first time she screams at her son, it freaks her out. Yeah. But she gets more and more comfortable with being a nutso person. It's really fucking sad when we see this dog die. Like, it's really sad. Because the dog is the sort of dog where it's like, it recognizes that there's danger and it doesn't want to be around danger, but it also wants to protect its family. Like we get all of this from the performance of this dog. <laughs> and then she just kills it because it's scared of her. And then it starts trying to get away from her. And so she's just like, no, fuck you. You know, it's it, it's almost like, you know, when your dog won't shut up and you're so stressed out and, and your dog won't shut up and you're just like, ah, I, I want to, ah, you know. Mm-hmm. But she actually kills the dog. My mom, even though no human dies in this, my mom would never watch this movie. She has this requirement. No kids, no no dogs. And this almost breaks both of them. So when she starts to go nuts, like, uh, like I said, uh, at one point he comes into her room and he's complaining about how hungry he is. And she's just like, just go to bed, just go to bed. I'm hungry, I'm hungry. Well, if you're so hungry, why don't you go eat shit? I'm really hungry, Mom. Why do you have to keep talk, talk, talking? Don't you ever stop? I was just... I need to sleep. I'm sorry, Mommy, I was just really hungry. If you're that hungry, why don't you go and eat shit? That's when she's like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, I don't want you to let it in. It's going to get in. It's going to get in. She's like, I will make sure nothing gets in. And then she goes and locks and closes everything. And I'm like, wait a minute. You weren't already locking and closing all of the doors and windows? said that. (laughs) 
<laughs> Kelsey was like in the middle. I think you said, wait a minute. And then I was like, she wasn't already locking. Kelsey was like, yes, that's exactly what I was thinking. Why weren't you closing and locking windows and doors? It's ridiculous. But he yells at her. I don't know if this is the same scene, but they're struggling with each other. And at one point he just screams out at her. Do you want to die? <laughs> Do you want to die? And I'm sorry. If my kid was ever ever had a streak of violence and he was being unmanageable and then he just screamed, do you want to die at me? I would lose my fucking mind. <laughs> I, I'd be so freaked out. <laughs> but he doesn't mean it like that. He means it as if you don't take action against this mom, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. I may die. Mm -hmm. And again, building into that metaphor, mom, it's your responsibility. I can try to help. I have tools. I can try to help, but you need to take action for this to get better. Yeah, and she's also got like basically like the whole basement is like a shrine to her husband. She hasn't thrown any of it away, but at the same time she refuses to talk about him. And yeah. so again, this plays into the kids obsession with his father he doesn't get to learn about him so he has to make up all this stuff about him and plays around in his things which when she goes crazy that drives her even more nuts she also becomes an insomniac during this process mm -hmm. and she doesn't fall asleep but time passes very oddly for her and at one point she's watching tv and all this weird shit comes on <laughs> and then there are a bunch of black and white silent films mm -hmm. where the Babadook appears. Mm -hmm. And it may appear that, wow, those are really good recreations of silent films. It looks so great. Uh, what, a, what a fantastic idea. But no, those are real silent films, and the Babadook is edited into them. Mm -hmm. There are seven of them as far as I'm aware. And they are. This is in chronological order. Four Heads Are Better Than One, from 1898. It's one minute long. That's the one where the heads are on the table. Uh, the Magic Book, from 1900. That's three minutes long. That's the one where the dude opens up that giant book and the Babadook is in there. <laughs> An Extraordinary Dislocation, 1901. That's two minutes. The Cakewalk Infernal, 1903. That's five minutes. That's where all the characters are dancing around. Mm -hmm. uh, Faust in Hell, that's where we get the hell landscape. That's from 1903, six minutes long. The House of Ghosts, 1907, that's also six minutes long. And from 1907, The Eclipse, Courtship of the Sun and Moon, and that's nine minutes long. You'll notice that every single one of those was at least 13 years prior to the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Mm hmm So I believe Jennifer Kent when she says that it might have been in the back of my head, but it wasn't what I was pulling from. Mm -hmm. But there is this style that definitely comes out, mm -hmm. you know, and we talk about these are there's some pretty scary scenes in some of this stuff, but it's not traditionally what we might think of horror. Cabinet of Dr. Caligari is a little bit closer to that. Plus, it's over an hour long and these are all nine minutes or less. Mm -hmm. And the Babadook himself is creepy. We see him in a couple of different forms. He's obviously illustrated but then we also see him in the shadows and we see his face and he has what appears to be a light gray painted face with black features like eyes and a mouth he has sharp teeth he wears a hat he has long pointed fingers and he wears a cape 
and, a, and like what appears to be a suit. And she sees him in places like she goes to the police to say somebody is harassing me and my son keeps leaving this book that's threatening to kill us. And then they're like, what are you t- what book? She's like, I burned it. And they're like, well, what the fuck do you want us to do? <laughs> like, what are we supposed to do? You could fill out a report. And she hesitates and declines and gets out of there real quickly because she sees the Babadook there. And what was, I think, just a coat hanging on the wall mm-hmm. turns into the Babadook. Mm-hmm. And she freaks out and gets out of there because she thinks now the Babadook is influencing them. Mm-hmm. Which, again, going on the same metaphor, is... These, these problems that you're having and this repression uh, might lead you to like misinterpret the actions of others and become paranoid or um, reject help that those sorts of things that you need to watch out for if you're you're in the sort of state that she's in yes. and once she's barricaded her and her son in the house, he while she's sleeping calls the neighbor. So they have this lovely, nice neighbor lady. Yeah. Who's re- who's old. She has Parkinson's. I'd do anything for you. You know that, right? Yeah. I love you and Samuel. And again, she rejects it. She keeps rejecting help. Yeah. And she's like, why do you bring my up my husband's name? I don't want to talk about him. Uh-huh. And, and again, just... refusing to acknowledge the things that are having the biggest emotional impact in her life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What happens, I can't remember, that she decides that she needs to actually go against the Babadook. I don't remember what it is. Is it that the son tells her he loves her even though she's about to kill him? I feel like that might be it. So what happens is she kills the dog, Mm -hmm. and then she starts to go after Samuel. You don't know how many times I wished it was you, not him, that died. I just want you to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Sometimes I just want to smash your head against a brick wall until your fucking brains pop out. You're not my mother. What did you say? I said you're not my mother. I am your mother. Run, run, run as fast as you can. And he runs into the basement where he set up a trip wire that she falls over and he has right he ties her down yeah he has that croquet ball launcher (laughs) and it like flings it at her and she has to dodge it and he ends up getting her down on the ground and tying her down and trying to deal with it with her but he's just a little kid he's not tying these knots very well she slips out and just her hands she starts to strangle him and he's he's really freaking out and he's crying. He's like, Mom, I love you. And then he starts to like, he gets kind of peaceful. And he does this thing that really weirded her out in the beginning where he takes his hand and he just like caresses the side of her face. This is something that happened early on in the movie when she's getting him ready for the party, I want to say, or some event that he has to go to. And as she's tying his shoes, he does that to her. And she starts to, like, appreciate it. And then she rejects it. She's like, stop that. It's weird. Or whatever it is that she says. Oh, no. That's when he squeezes her too tightly. He first goes to hug her and then he squeezes her too tight. No, but he does the, he does the hand caress thing. Okay. And, and there's a moment where she's like, oh, this is nice. You know, being touched by somebody who loves you. Mm-hmm. You know? But she rejects it because, I don't know. 
Does she not deserve to feel these good things? Does she feel like she deserves to feel like shit all the time? And she's rejecting the love and compassion of a family member, someone who's close to her. And, and it builds up that a lot of this stuff is like the way she feels is not her own doing. It is not her fault. The stuff that has happened to her is not her fault. The way she reacts to it and the decisions she makes as a result, that is in her control. Mm-hmm. And the decisions she makes are mostly bad ones, <laughs> including rejecting somebody that cares about her. And he does that thing again where he caresses the side of her face again. And that's when she snaps and she throws him off of her and she turns around and she just throws up this black gunk. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if it's before or after this where she finally gets up the willpower to just shout at it and you are in my house get out of my house if you touch my son again i'll kill you yeah you are nothing you're nothing this is my house you are trespassing in my house And that's when she has power, when she finally expresses with all of her willpower, I'm doing something about this. Mm -hmm. I do not have to put up with this. And I'm going to take action. And I will fuck you up if you try to ruin the life of me and my child. And she's basically talking to her sickness. Mm -hmm. Flash forward. Because it runs away. It runs into the basement again. Because they've made their way up to the bedroom. And flash forward. He's playing what is he doing i think he's gardening with the neighbor or something yeah something's happening and and then they get oh they they find bugs she's gardening and he's like oh yeah you find another bug put it in your collection and then oh man you found a bunch of them right and they take this bowl to the door to the basement and he can't go in and she's like when you're older you know you can go in and then she goes down there and the Babadook is down there. The way I took it is the reason that she's like, okay, you need to stay out here. I'm going to be down there for a little while. And I'll come back out. I take it as this is my me time. This is my personal time. This is this my is... time to deal with the fact that I actually have issues. Acknowledge yes. that they exist. And I feel Allow them. yourself to, f- to feel it. Right. And I, you know, I respond to it. I acknowledge it. I calm myself, which is what she does to the uh-huh. Babadook. She tells him to quiet down uh-huh. and she feeds it and then she walks away. And that's what I think the metaphor is saying is that, you know, she takes time to to really think about her issues and to acknowledge like I am not well and I need to calm down and I need to release my anger yeah. here. It's the opposite of the sedatives for Samuel mm-hmm. where it's about sending the thing away and not dealing with it and pushing it aside at the expense of your own mental health. Mm -hmm. This is the exact opposite. It's acknowledging it, 
It's it's feeding it when it needs to be fed, not letting it corrupt you or anyone else around you. You know, those are real emotions. Feel them, but deal with them. Don't suppress them. Let them have their time and then get back to your life. You know, care about your child. Take care of your family. Mm-hmm. And they're both really happy. When Child Protective Services, we didn't mention that, the Australian equivalent of CPS shows up again to check in on them. They're well, all happy. Because they came earlier in the film. Yeah, when she found the bugs crawling out of the wall and they it showed up. didn't look good. They're like, <laughs> obviously come at a bad time. We're going to reschedule this. <laughs> and they're like, we're going to have to take this kid. Mm-hmm. And so when they come back, it's like, oh yeah, this is, my, this is my first birthday I've ever celebrated on the day. And they're like, that's really weird. And he's like, well, no, not really. My mom didn't like celebrating it on that day because that was the day that my dad died when they were driving to the hospital to give birth to me. You know, like, because he's very open about that stuff. And the mom, instead of being like like she was earlier in the film, which is just like, shush, you know, we don't talk about that stuff. You don't tell other people about this stuff. You know, you you suppress it. You don't talk about it. You do not share it. Instead, she's like, yeah. <laughs> That's what happened, mm-hmm. you know, and we're, this is what's happening now. We're having a party just for him. And it's not that she ever stopped caring for or loving Samuel. And it's not that just the love is all that it takes to deal with a problem child. It's not saying that that's the solution. Samuel is still a handful, but you cannot deal with your problems unless you confront them is like the thesis of this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad you pointed that out. I don't think I would have dived that deep into it unless you had pointed that out. So thank you for that, Kelsey. You're welcome. Lightning round. The director of The Exorcist, William Friedkin, he has said that, quote, I've never seen a more terrifying film than The Babadook. He said that on Twitter, Psycho, Alien, Diabolique, and now The Babadook. I've never seen a more terrifying film than The Babadook. It will scare the hell out of you as it did me. It's a frightening movie. The first time I saw it, it scared me. And I, I, I kind of really appreciate the style that it has with those scares and everything centered around The Babadook. It just has style for days. Just the shadows, like, the jagged yeah. lines, the absurd set design. Yeah, just like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, it's great. Man, Kelsey, good choice pairing these movies. So when the Babadook fully has her, she goes to talk to Sam and she says, I'm sick. I need help. You know, I want you to meet your dad. It's going to be beautiful there. And then you realize, oh, fuck. And Uh she takes out a knife. But then the kid hits her instead. Yeah. (laughs) Which is pretty great. It also reminds me of, of, there's the scene where they get home and she's really stressed out. And I think this is after the car accident when she sees the Babadook and she freaks out and crashes into another car. And I think after that is when the scene happens where she draws a bath and then she just sits in it. With all of her clothes on. And she's just sitting there and she's staring at nothing. Which is a lot of what, like, depression can be like. And Samuel comes in and is like, Mom, what's up? (laughs) And then she picks him up, puts him over the tub, and sets him in as well. And I was like, oh my god, she's going to try to drown this kid. (laughs) 
I remember that the first time I saw it. It gave me a lot of anxiety, right? But man, it just builds right back into the metaphor of if you don't deal with this, what is effectively corruption inside of you, it will spread to those closest to you and the people around you and those that you have influence over like your children. Mm -hmm. And they'll be in the same exact position that you're in, in this depressive state, completely clothed, sitting in a bathtub full of water, staring at nothing. And then that's what you'll be sharing together. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot of laughter in this episode. (laughs) Yeah. Let's talk about the Babadook gay icon. What? You don't know about this. What? I guess it's a Twitter thing. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. The Babadook is a gay icon. Why? It happened pseudo-organically. Do you know how... Netflix sorts its films into different categories. Yes. (laughs) There was a post by somebody. I think this was the original poster. So I'm sorry if I get it wrong by Taco Bell Ray. It's a picture of their Netflix queue. And the category is LGBT movies. (laughs) And in that selection of films is the Babadook. (laughs) Taco Bell Ray posts so proud that Netflix recognizes the Babadook as gay representation. <laughs> Somebody responds to that. Barracorn responds to that. The B in LGBT stands for Babadook. <laughs> and that became like a running gag in social media, Tumblr and Twitter and stuff like that. And so when June came around and June is LGBTQ Pride Month, people started doing like fan art and stuff like that. And it's things like the Babadook smiling a big smile out of the out of the 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 actual book and holding a gay pride flag (laughs) or like it's all a bunch of stuff like that it was like this whole running gag thing and then people were all like well no let's sit down and actually analyze this there are parallels you have to understand that this is something that was embraced this whole thing spread within the gay community first It began as a joke. It was just a way to have fun and share this inside thing that the LGBT community had. And so LA Times did a story on it. They interviewed Karen Tongson, who is an associate professor of gender studies and English at USC. And she said, how could the Babadook become a gay film? And the answer was readily available. Quote, he lives in a basement. He's weird and flamboyant. He's living adjacently to a single mother in this kind of queer kinship structure. The Babadook is creative. It makes a pop-up book. Has Is a distinctive dresser. Instead of living in the proverbial closet, he lives in a literal basement. He exists in a half-acknowledged state by the other people in the house. The family is afraid of what he is, but finds a way to accept him over time. Quote, for many LGBT people, that's what it feels like to be in your own family sometimes. Kelsey? Yes. What do you think its Rotten Tomato score is? 96. 98. 215 positive reviews out of 219. <laughs> like, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. That's really, really incredible. It's very good. I'm not surprised. The Babadook relies on real horror rather than cheap jump scares and boasts a heartfelt, genuinely moving story to boot. What would you give it? Probably a 94. I was going to say 92. 
<laughs> All right, good. See, we align on some things. I, I think it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. I think this movie is an important piece of cinema because it does something that not a lot of movies do. There are not a lot of movies or media in general that talk about these sorts of issues in especially, this way. Especially this, like, eloquently. Yeah. And in a genre that you love. Yeah. It's rare, if ever. And usually when you see kids that are dealing with mental disorders and you have to see the parents that deal with it, it's usually sappy. Yeah. It's usually like, just do this and everything will be better. Yeah. And this is one of the few things that's like, no, you can't get rid of the Babadook. Yeah. It's there. It's not going anywhere and you have to deal with it every day. But you get through it. There aren't many things that say that. It is something that deserves attention. It is something that will always be swept under the rug because it's something people don't like to talk about. It's something that people don't understand unless they go through it or they know someone who's gone through it. I think the only thing that's really missing from it yeah. is genuine scares. I think it scared me the first time I saw it. I think I jumped once. I think the thing about the Babadook is that it's so visually interesting that you want to keep your eyes wide open and you want to see everything. And that's contrary to the impulse that causes scariness, which is you want to avert your gaze. Mm -hmm. You want to get out of there. And me, it's like every time you see the Babadook, I'm like, no, 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 stop. I want to see more. I want to see it clearer. <laughs> that's why when I, when you get to see it moving in the in the movies, that's why like I love that part because you get to really see the Babadook in there for a few short seconds, more so than you get to see him in real life in the movie. So, yeah, it becomes this fascinating thing instead of a scary thing. Mm -hmm. And to boot... It has a really important story, like you said. So next week, Kelsey, what are we watching? In preparation for St. Patrick's Day next week, we will be watching Maniac Cop yep. and Grabbers. Why are we watching those movies in preparation for St. Patrick's Day? Maniac Cop happens to take place on St. Patrick's Day or around it. Yeah. And Grabbers takes place in Ireland. Nice. Kelsey and I are actually both going on trips. I'm going to a wedding. She's going on a work trip at the same time around St. Patrick's Day. So we're going to record these pretty quickly, these two episodes. We're actually going to do two episodes of St. Patrick's Day videos, St. Patrick's Day episodes, just like we recorded two episodes of Valentine's Day. One before and then one after right and we did yeah and we did that for new year's eve yeah well. and we so, and we did a lot more for christmas because yeah, well, christmas is great <laughs> and then of course halloween so <laughs> next week maniac cop and grabbers mm -hmm. i haven't seen either one of them neither have i <laughs> All right. In the meantime, you can write us at podcemetery at gmail.com if you want to make a recommendation for what we should watch or if you want to provide comments for something we have watched or something we're going to watch, please do. We'd be happy to read them. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pod Cemetery. Don't forget to rate, comment, subscribe in the podcatcher of your choice. 
we're right now on SoundCloud and iTunes. So if you have a scrubber that gets one of those, then grab it. Until next time, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. This has been Pod Cemetery. And Kelsey, what do we say? If it's in a word or it's in a look, you can't get rid of the Babadook. If you're really a clever one and you know what it is to see, then you can make friends with a special one, a friend of you and me. His name is Mr. Babadook, and this is his book. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. Ba 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 duk duk duk. That's when you'll know that he's around. You'll see him if you look. This is what he wears on top. He's funny, don't you think? See him in your room at night, and you won't sleep a wink. I'll soon take off my funny disguise. Take heed of what you've read. Once you see what's underneath, you're going to wish you were dead. I'll wager with you, I'll make you a bet. The more you deny, the stronger I get. You start to change when I get in. The Babadook growing right under your skin. Oh, come. Come see what's underneath. Kelsey, you know, I was not expecting all of the fried squid in this movie. I mean, we are, we're talking about the cabinet of Dr. Calamari, right? <laughs> I seriously, guys, I looked at Chris like, what the fuck? <laughs> I didn't get the joke until he said it. The punchline. Oh, hooray. Tis my time. I don't know. The omen uh-huh. and orphan. Orphan. Well, no. Sorry. I'll take that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Listen, I'll put this at the end of the episode. So if you've made it this far, there's nothing else after this. Spoiler. Spoiler alert for the for the orphan. She wasn't a kid. It doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs>